After Jesus was resurrected, he began a series of appearances to a variety of people, most especially his closest followers, the first witnesses, the apostles. We're going to look at a passage this morning that I have read many, many times, and I suspect that almost all of you have read it before as well, and I saw something this week that, that blew my mind. I had never seen this before. So the night after, I think it might have been the day after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the apostles all together in a room. Thomas was late. So Thomas came in later, and the other apostles tell him about the appearance of Jesus. And obviously, they've got to have been incredibly animated and excited about this. And we're going to read about Thomas's encounter, what, you know, what he's feeling and what he's thinking. So we're going to read from John chapter 20, verses 24 and following. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to look on or a Bible app on your phone. John chapter 20, verses 24 and following. This is the account of Jesus seeing the risen Christ. And let's do some spiritual aerobics. Let's go old school. And out of reverence for God's word, let's stand together. So John chapter 20, verses 24 and following. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I, I won't believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The same thing we say to one another on Sunday mornings. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those, and he's talking about us, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John wraps up, Jesus did many other miracles, miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated. So as I said, this is a well-known story, but I realized this week, I don't think I've ever seen it correctly. I think I've missed the obvious truth in this. I was reminded of, some of you heard the story of the woman, she's driving down the road, she's got her, her children in the back seat with her, they're driving along, and the woman sees coming up behind her in a rear, rear view mirror, a car driving speedy, and there is a woman in the passenger seat of the car standing up, and she's naked. She doesn't have a shred of clothing on, and the woman's thinking to herself, oh, no, I hope my son doesn't see this. And sure enough, the car drives up right beside the van, and the little boy goes, mom, 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 look. She goes, oh, no. She says, look, look, that woman doesn't have a seatbelt on. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we miss the thing that's most obvious. And I have with this, with this passage, if we see this story correctly, there are three things that are kind of come into focus for us. I think we'll see two ways in which Thomas is a perfect model for us. 
as we act on and think about our faith. And we'll also see one critically important way in which Thomas is not like us at all. And we're going to start there. But first, let me tell you what forced me to think differently about this passage, to see it differently than I've ever seen it before. Commentators of the book of John have often noted how selective John is with the Jesus material. At the end of this passage, in fact, remember, he tells us that there's many things he did that are not recorded here. In fact, students of John have noticed that he really only covers, check this, 21 days of Jesus' life. Maybe 22, depending on how you read one of the stories. That's not a biography. That's a summary at the highest possible level. And now add to that the incredible observation, hold on, the incredible observation that most students of John, by the way, agree with, that this is the most important interaction in the whole book. John has built a very abbreviated account of Jesus' life, and he's made this story the high point of the whole thing. That's crazy surprising for me. I had never read that before. When I saw that this week, I thought, why? Why is this the high point of John's entire account of Jesus' life? There are many other likely candidates in my mind. I mean, Thomas doesn't exactly come off as a hero, right? We, we may sympathize with him, but that's only because we can relate to how halting and doubting he is, and not just in this passage. In chapter 11, for example, really good friend Lazarus has died. Jesus says to the followers, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, so let's go to him. And John tells us that Tom stands at the back of the line and mumbles to those within earshot, okay, I guess let's go so we can all die together. In chapter 14, Jesus gives one of his most important and most intimate teachings to his inner circle. He gathers them near. He knows the time of his death is close. Jesus says, don't worry, don't be upset, trust God, trust also in me. Let me give you an analogy. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to go there, I'm going to prepare one for you so that we can be together. Look, you know the way to where I'm going, so keep that in mind over the next few days and weeks. Thomas, I see that hand, what's your question? And Thomas says, Lord, this is crazy, we don't have any idea where you're going. How can we know the way? We don't even know what you're talking about. It's as if Thomas is the patron saint for the American suburbanite. He's demanding, he's a little sarcastic, he wants assurances, and he doubts everything he can't put his hands on. But it's especially from this story that Thomas gets his reputation. Even if you don't know this story, I bet you know the phrase doubting Thomas. So why would John choose this? as the high point of his account of Jesus' life. Well, a big part of the reason why is also the one very important way in which Thomas is not like us at all. So let's begin there. You see, Thomas is one of the apostles. He pauses for dramatic effect, even though everyone is thinking, so what? John knows that he needs to make that clear. The apostles were the very first followers and eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. John wants to highlight the significance of that. Notice that he goes out of his way here to describe Thomas as one of the 12. Here's the first surprising realization for me. Check this. Thomas doesn't need to see the resurrected Jesus in order to believe. He doesn't need to see the resurrected Jesus in order to believe. Jesus makes that clear. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. 
Thomas doesn't need to see the resurrection in order to believe. In fact, Jesus rebukes Thomas for not believing simply based on the testimony of the other apostles. Hold that thought for a second. Let's also notice that in a real sense, Thomas already does believe. Okay, I know he's a bit of a pill, questioning, doubting, offering his sarcastic commentary, but he's there. He's consistently there. He continues to show up even after Jesus' death, even when the very lives of the followers are in danger, he doesn't disappear. Think about it. For one week, Thomas relates to the other apostles exactly in the same way we do. He has to believe their testimony. Now, he doesn't, not fully, but he doesn't disappear. He doesn't discard it. He doesn't desert. He doesn't reject it. It's clear that he struggles, but he wants to believe. And then a week later, the apostles are gathered together again, and Thomas is there on time this time. Last time, Thomas was a little late. That's like some of us, some of you show up on Sunday morning. Jesus has already come and gone. But this time... <laughs> Thomas is there when Jesus shows up, and it seems that Jesus starts the conversation by rebuking Thomas for not believing without seeing, right? And yet, then he gives Thomas what he's just rebuked him for. He gives him empirical proof. Why? As we said, Thomas doesn't need to see Jesus in order to believe Generations of us have come to faith without seeing Jesus. Why does Jesus show up again for Thomas? Why this exchange? Because Thomas was an apostle. And the apostles are going to be the ones to tell the whole world. They're going to be the ones to be the launching point for the message. They're going to be what Paul called the foundation of the church and of our faith. They were specifically chosen for this, and they got the club-level treatment. They got to see it all, they got to touch it all, they got to hear it all so that they could tell it all. This is why in Acts chapter 1, when they chose a successor for Judas, they elected someone who had been an actual witness of the resurrection. This is why the Apostle Paul goes out of his way in his writing to demonstrate that he actually had seen the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, he says that Jesus, quote, appeared to me as one untimely born. The apostles were the ones who actually saw the resurrected Jesus. And John's point here is this. Hey, you can listen to us. You can trust us because we got club-level treatment. We saw it all with our own eyes. We got empirical evidence. It's actually true. It actually happened. Trust us. And Thomas becomes John's primary audiovisual aid to make this critically important point. This stuff actually happened. And we're going to tell you about it. We saw it. So we're not apostles. We've not actually seen the resurrected Jesus. We are among the millions who rely on the testimony of the first witnesses. And some of us, frankly, we react like John reacted. As soon as he saw the empty tomb, he believed. He knew it. It fell into place for him, and his heart soared. On the other hand, some of us react like Thomas. We're natural Missourians. We need to see it before we can believe it. And yet, God is able to bring us to faith, to woo us, to nurture us, to win us. We're halting, we're doubting, we're throwing in the occasional sarcastic comment, but we're here. 
And that makes us blessed. A modern translation for that word blessed is seriously in the right place. We're blessed. We also said that if we're going to see this story rightly, in addition to seeing Thomas as an apostle, we need to see the two ways in which Thomas is a model for us. Ways in which he's like us. In the first instance, many of us are exactly like him. We'll start there. And in the second instance, we can be and we must be like him. So let's take the first instance. First, many of us are just like Thomas in the way our faith is assaulted by doubt. What is Thomas's first reaction to the other apostles' account? Essentially this, right? Okay, I believe in this stool because I can see it, I can feel it, and it is supporting my weight. Dead people do not walk around and speak to their friends. It's a great idea, but it just doesn't happen. I can't believe it unless I see the holes in his hands and his feet and his side. As an aside, let's say something about doubt here. Certainly doubt is not a good thing. It weakens our connection to God. It diminishes our confidence. It can be paralyzing. Doubting ourselves is damaging and it's unhealthy in the long run. Doubting God is much worse. But for most of us, it's inevitable. It was for Thomas. And when you experience doubt, you're not in a good place, but you're in good company. So it's important to remember a truth about doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Thomas is a perfect breathing illustration of that. Apathy is the opposite of faith in one direction. And active unbelief is the opposite of faith in the other. Doubt is to have your mind in two different places at the same time. Part of you, you're in the place of apathy or unbelief. And with part of your mind, you're in the place of belief. You're in the place of faith. You can only doubt what you at least in part believe. Doubt is dangerous spiritual territory, but it's not deadly. Or at least it doesn't have to be. Pretending that doubt doesn't exist or trying to force it away are worse options than acknowledging it and dealing with it. Some of us struggle with doubt. You understand Thomas' sentiment exactly. For a few of you, I want to encourage you, you need to be honest this morning. Your doubt is in danger of metastasizing into apathy or unbelief. That's why you're here on Easter and Christmas. That's why you're always worried. That's why you're angrier than you have a right to be. You don't believe what the apostles have told us. You're not stepping in. You're not dealing with your doubt. You're allowing your doubt to erode and create distance. Not actively, but precisely because of inactivity. Honestly, I have prayed and I prayed this morning that something would happen that would be a wake-up call for you. I'm not encouraging easy believism. I'm encouraging you to re-engage your own heart and mind. Don't put your doubts on the shelf. For some of you, that's what religion has told you. Don't doubt, just believe, you've heard. Well, Thomas didn't do that, but neither did he give up. He pressed in. He took the next step. He kept taking the next step. He showed up. He put himself in a place of grace. You can begin there, then move forward by asking God to show up himself on your behalf. Final comment, you should also doubt your doubts. For some of you, if you pressed your doubts through the same vice grip that you subject your faith to, they would wither. 
So I'm encouraging you to show up like Thomas did. But there's another category of doubters here, isn't there? For many of us, our struggle with doubt is ongoing. It's off and on, but it seems to be persistent. But we hang in there. We try to press on. We stay. I honestly think we're the kind of people that Jesus commends. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, he said to Thomas. They will not get the club-level treatment, but they persist, they hang on, and they are blessed. I'm not saying that our condition is good enough. I'm not saying that we've arrived. I'm not saying that there's not more. God has much more for us, more confidence, deeper connection, more of him. But this is a starting point. And Thomas is our model. John wants to be sure that we get that. Finally, there's a third reason why this is the highlight of this entire account. A second and more important reason, Thomas is a model for us. Or really, he's a model for what we should be, what we must be. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. This is also the most important reason why this is John's highlight point. This was the real kicker for me when I saw this with new eyes this week. So Thomas, in this passage, doubting Thomas, remember, that's the way he's always known as, that's how this passage is often titled in our Bibles. Thomas here makes the clearest declaration of faith anywhere in the entire Bible. This declaration is the main reason this passage is the highlight of John's account. This is what it's all about. Thomas believes and declares what you and I have to believe in order to be Christians my Lord and my God. Turns out Thomas is not the ultimate doubter. He's the ultimate believer. And this statement of faith, based on the historical, factual resurrection of Jesus, is the point toward which John's entire ministry is focused. Let me explain that. There's this notion rampant in the modern world that what's important is the teaching of Jesus. What we really need is his message of love for one another. Many people believe this is the real point of the Jesus story. We need justice in our wildly unjust world. We need peace. We need to act like Jesus. This, according to much current thought, is the point of the entire story. All this business about the supernatural and resurrections and such, it's just too exclusive. It just doesn't work for the modern world. It's about the amazing teaching that Jesus offered us. But right in the middle of this passage, John crushes that notion altogether. If the teaching of Jesus was the real critical thing, then Thomas would not have needed this encounter with the risen Christ. He'd already heard the teaching. He'd already heard Jesus say, love your enemies. Do good to those who curse you. He'd already heard Jesus say, don't worry. He'd already heard Jesus say, don't judge or you'll be judged, the byline for the 21st century American. And if Jesus' teaching was the main point, John himself would not have written, John would not have written a letter later in his life to a group of young Christians and introduced that letter with this. Listen to John's introduction to his own letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our, and our hands have touched. This is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it 
and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The main point is not the teaching of Jesus. Our faith is not essentially a way of life. Oh, it is a way of life, but that's not the essential thing. Our faith is not essentially a philosophy. It's certainly not a code of conduct. Our faith rises and falls on an historical, actual, real-time event that a group of hand-picked, highly reliable witnesses observed and experienced. And that historical event does not just simply adjust our behavior, it changes reality as we know it, including our internal reality. Mere teaching cannot change your life, even the best teaching. Teaching cannot restore your marriage. Teaching cannot fill you with a sense of purpose and connection, not sustainably. Teaching cannot offer you more hope or create within you more peace. Only an experience of the risen Christ can do that. And if it all comes down to the teaching of Jesus, then it's about us. It's about our effort to apply that teaching. We have to listen. We have to follow. We have to find a new way. But it's not about us. John makes that point clear. It's about Jesus. Here's one of the great ironies of our modern day. Those of us who are the most sensitive to the downtrodden, those whose attitudes are most reflective of Jesus's in terms of compassion and openness and tolerance are the ones most likely to get this completely wrong. They approach the problems of our world convinced that what we really need is more information or more knowledge, more teaching, if you will. We need the right system in place, they say, and we need to educate the underprivileged. They need to know about justice, and they need to know about loving one another. We need to improve their lives. We need to make them more like middle-class Americans. But if you go to the places of faith where people are actually being oppressed and downtrodden, here's some proof of our point. They don't gather in their communities and say, we need to love one another more. We need more justice. We need to be more compassionate and tolerant. No, in those communities where they are actually downtrodden, they say, Christ the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's dance and worship him. And with our elite mindset, we say, well, I know that's what they believe because we do, but it's because they're not very sophisticated. They don't know how exclusive that is. They don't know that that's what creates all the problems. They don't understand yet what they really need is just justice and tolerance. But what if they understand perfectly well? What if they really say that because that alone has the real power to transform? By the way, in case you're wondering, I'm pretty much talking about most of what 20th and 21st century liberalism espouses. If John is right, then intellectually and practically it misses the point by a wide margin. And I think Thomas is exhibit A. And if you're worried about the possible political implications of what I'm saying, you should come some Sunday when we follow Jesus in an exchange with the Pharisees and listen in. Because those guys would likely have been card-carrying members of the Tea Party. And Jesus reserves his fiercest criticism for them. The point is not to not be liberal or conservative. The point is that any system of social, educational, or political thought is not the point. 
The real point is the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That alone can transform us. And we begin to experience that power. We, we touch on that transforming potential in our lives when we're able to say with our whole heart, mind, and being, my Lord and my God. You know, this gets at the very heart of what these first witnesses called the gospel. Because if you're depending on Jesus' teaching, if that's the basis of faith for you, then you are essentially saying, I need to try to live like Jesus. As I said, then it's about you. And that's what reliance on the great teacher Jesus implies. But what these first witnesses discovered and shared with us is precisely the opposite of that. You cannot try hard enough to be a better person. These guys have been as clear as they can be. What they're saying is this. You have no hope of doing or being anything like Jesus. Or for that matter, of even being what God designed you to be. But Jesus has done the work for you. So trust him and surrender your life to him. You and I don't need a teacher. We need a savior. And let's not miss the obvious wackiness in this whole idea. Hang on. In his teaching ministry, Jesus actually said some really crazy things. One woman asked Jesus about God's hero the Messiah who was going to come and save the world. And Jesus said, that's me. And if you drink from me, you'll never be thirsty again. What? Who says that? He told a group of his Pharisee critics, you're of the world. I'm not of the world. You're from below. I'm from above. What? He told the same group that Abraham had longed to see his ministry. They were aghast. You're not 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? And Jesus answers them in the worst possible way. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was, I am. This is clearly a turn on the name of God itself. The name by which God identified himself to Moses was Yahweh, which if translated literally means something like I am. Do you get what he's saying? Then in John 8, he said, if you knew me, you would know the Father. In John 12, he said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. In short, the great teacher Jesus is claiming to be God himself. No one in their right mind would follow a great teacher who said these kinds of things. That guy's not an admirable teacher. He's either a lunatic or he's a grandmaster manipulator or he's God in the flesh and deep down inside we know it. Look. It's not that you and I are exceedingly bad. That's not their point. It is that we are exceedingly and hopelessly out of sync. To use the current psychological term, we are dysfunctional throughout. In all of our relationships, in the way we think about things, in the way we interact, in the way we process. And we don't need more information. That's only a slight overstatement. Certainly information and knowledge are often very helpful, but they can't move us through and out of our most difficult problems. We don't need a better education. We need a savior. And this is why John, at the climax of his account of Jesus' life, gives us the story of his friend Thomas. Thomas the skeptic. Thomas the reluctant would become the father of the faith. John is saying, you can believe us. 
Hey, we barely believed it ourselves. Check out Thomas. But it's true. It's profound. It's awesome. And it changes everything. So what do we do with this? Let me suggest four things for us this morning. And let's make these our walking points. Number one, pay attention to the teachings of the apostles. Look, you have to read the book. I know it's boring. I know it's hard to understand in places, but if this story is true, then it's vitally important for you to know it and to hear it from the first witnesses. It's not by accident that in Ephesians 2.20, Paul says the apostles are the foundation of the faith. This is why John makes such a big deal out of pointing out that Thomas was an apostle. He was an eyewitness. He got the club-level treatment. Remember, Thomas was rebuked for not believing what the other apostles had said. So what about us? How are we doing with that? These guys got the club-level treatment. We can trust these guys. They saw it, and they tell us repeatedly. So when you're doing spiritual work, don't spend all your time with devotionals, reading what somebody else thinks of somebody else. Read the book yourself and trust the message. You can figure it out. Start with John. He's, he's fairly easy. He only covers 21 days. Secondly, I want to encourage you to take the next step to press in. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, do the next right thing, the thing that takes you deeper in. For some of you, it's a conversation with someone here or someone you know. For some of you, it's connecting to one of our small group. What's a small group? Who cares? Take the next step. For some of you, it's just showing up once in a while on Sunday morning, and I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I get it. It's tough, and it's beautiful today. Thank you for coming. I'm sorry I reminded you. Half of you will leave in a minute. Take the next steps. Thomas stayed. He hung around. And then he becomes the ultimate believer. So for you, you don't have to figure out what's nine yards down the road. Just take the next step. Third, I encourage you to remember your own experiences and don't surrender ground to doubt unnecessarily. And it happens, right? It happens through anger. It happens through self-pity. Don't surrender ground easily. When you have an experience with God, remember that and do not give it up. You know, scholars are almost unanimously agreed that Thomas didn't actually touch Jesus. The account seems to suggest that Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, here are my hands, here are my feet. And Thomas is thinking, how did he know? How did he know I was asking that? Maybe the disciples were gossiping about Thomas in, in the week in between, but I don't think so. Thomas is amazed, and he says, my Lord and my God. Some of you have had experience with, with Jesus, but over time, you allow those experiences to diminish. And what looms before you is why you just got fired. Why? Ugh. That's the time for you to remember the experiences that you yourself have had. But fourth. Look at his wounds. This is what broke Thomas's heart and then mended it. This is what we need. Look, we sometimes think, I just, why didn't God just come down and write it in the sky? Why didn't he split apart the sky and show up and I'm God? 
Okay, we would be amazed for sure. We would obey for a while, but you know your own heart. Those of your parents, you especially know this. Do that. Why should I do that? Because I'm going to kill you if you don't, and I said so. Okay, they go do it until we turn away. And then they're done obeying. Unless it comes from in, in here, and that splitting apart of the sky is not going to change your heart. You need a God who bleeds. You need a gourd God. You need a God who will die for you. You need holes in the hands and feet and side. You need God on a stick saying, it's finished. I did it for you. And then you and I say, my Lord and my God. And not just the great declaration of faith, not just Lord and God, but my Lord and my God. That's what Thomas did. That's a model for us. That's what we must do. Let's pray. Father, this morning we remember. We remember what Jesus did. And we remember, honestly, Lord, we remember the encounters that we have had with you. And today, we, Jesus, we see your wounds. And we thank you. We celebrate you. We recognize, Lord Jesus, that you are risen. You are risen indeed. And today, Father, we press in. We step in. We move toward you. Some of us haltingly, some of us carrying out all of our doubt and our sarcasm and our cynicism, but we step in and we embrace. And we offer this morning all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. We take the next step. We thank you so much for the truth that you've made clear to us. We acknowledge it this morning. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.